Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. You are listening to Lost in Science, another half hour of excellent science on your radio device. My name is Chris and this week I will be talking to marine scientist Sophie Burgess about some research on scallops and what this means for sustainable fisheries of scallops. Uh, Sophie, thank you for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited to be here. Brilliant. We will find out about you very shortly. Um, But first, I need to also mention that we also have a story from Stu, who will be speaking to Professor Tim Stinier from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity at the University of Melbourne. And he is talking about the Baruli ulcer, which is a flesh-eating bacterial infection that you may have seen um, popping up on the news. It's been infecting people around the Morning Peninsula. Uh, Stu is talking to Professor... Stinia about what that bacteria is and uh, where it came from. Turns out that it's not as new as it might seem. Anyway, some disgusting bacterial stuff for you to look forward to there. Yeah, stay tuned. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and I am speaking to marine scientist Sophie Burgess. Now, Sophie did some research at the Auckland University on the fisheries ecology of New Zealand scallops, and she is here today to tell us all about it. Sophie, welcome again to Lost in Science. Thank you. Now, I will be the first to admit that I don't know much about scallops, so can you tell me a bit, what do I need to know about scallops, what they are and what they do? Well, they're really delicious. Um, yep, you eat them. They're a bivalve, which is a type of shellfish. Um, and if you've ever seen SpongeBob SquarePants, there's these little birdie things that kind of flap around. They're um, scallops. Okay. Yeah, so if, next time you watch SpongeBob and you see, like, little birds they're actually little scallop shells they're like castanets kind of yeah so scallops can actually swim um and that's why they're birds i guess in spongebob so in bivalve i assume that means it's got two shells yeah so it's got the two shells like clappers yep together so yep bivalves is two um yeah they're they're usually found in the benthic environment which is sort of the sandy bottom of deeper water. It's called the benthos. Um, Yeah, and they're really popular um, in New Zealand fisheries. Um, Not so sure if they're as popular in Australia. Um, And I've got some fun facts. They have eyes. They've got like 50 eyes. Um, Next time you look at a live scallop, which is probably not very often, if you're not a scientist like me that worked on them, they've got these really nice blue little eyes, and it almost looks like eyelashes as well, but it's actually their little filter-feeding tentacles. Okay, so you're going to have to explain this bit, a bit more for me. because I don't. So when you, when you eat a scallop yep. or you get a scallop from the, the fish market, yep. you have 
two bits kind of, yeah, yes, like a little do. round white bit and then there's kind of a orangey, squishy bit. Yeah. Um, where is the rest of it? Like where is the okay. the eyes and the tentacles so and these kind that's, of things? So that stuff gets removed when you eat it. So ah. imagine a living scallop, not like the one that's on your plate. Um, if you imagine the shell, the two valves are closed and there's sort of like little squiggly ridges with little spaces between oh, yeah. where the, I guess you could like imagine it like teeth um, touching each other. And then in between each of those gaps is a little eye. And then the tentacles kind of come out those little gaps and that's what they use to suck in their food, which is algae in most cases. Um, but what you see on your plate is basically the nice stuff, all the yucky tentacly stuff gets scraped out. And all out. the organs and things. Um, yeah, the organs... But you do eat the gonads, which oh. is um, what is that? How do I recognise that? The bit? orange part. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know with is the, that the same in males and females? Um, so I'm not sure about the Australian species, but I know the New Zealand one. If you look at sort of the the C shape orangey bit, sometimes yep. it's half white and half orange, mm-hmm. and that's like the female and male part. Can't oh. remember which colors which right now. And then the white round meaty bit, that's called the muscle. So that's what they use to keep their shell closed. Right. So that, the, the bit you eat is basically the muscle. Muscle and the gonads. Right. So Like the row. The row. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And the rest of it, all these tentacles and eyes and things, they are discarded somewhere. Yeah. So when you take them out of the shell, you've got to scrape out all the connecty stuff. Okay. So you talked about these kind of eyelashy type of tentacles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they what it, that's what it uses to feed? Yeah. So What does it eat? It usually they usually eat algae, which is just floating around in the sea. Um and little bacteria sometimes that are floating around in the water column. And basically what they do is they just wiggle their tentacles in the direction towards their they don't really have a mouth. It kind of just goes into the stomachy part. Invertebrates don't really have all those complicated parts. Um, and, yeah, they just kind of wiggle their tentacles in and out and it sucks the water and then all the bacteria and algae in there and then they digest it and they're happy and they bury themselves and till they're next hungry, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. So... That's obviously you do know quite a bit about scallops. Um, what was what was the focus of your research then? Um, the focus of my research was really to help us get a better understanding of the scallop fishery in New Zealand um, for population modelling. Um, so that's how many scallops are out there in the population for us to fish. So my project was a fisheries focused project. Um, and I used a whole lot of data that was in a big database of the place that I did my thesis with, where they collected um, survey data of scallops for probably 20 to 25 years, and I basically went through that data and tried to make sense of it and help them make some predictions for future years. So that was kind of the most boring part, going through data. The fun part for me was actually going out on scallop boats now that I'm about to describe it, it doesn't sound that great. I got up at three in the morning, hung out on a boat with like two guys that were really 
unshowered and stuff because there's not really a shower on the boat and it's kind of tight living quarters. But that was fun anyway. You'd see like the sunset and, you know, three in the morning, not much is happening. So we went and did some scallop dredging, which is how you collect scallops by dropping a, it's kind of like a cage, I guess, with big teeth. And you drag it along the bottom of the benthos, which is the sandy bottom. And then you close it up, kind of like a bear trap, I suppose. And then all the scallops are inside there and the sand gets filtered out. So that was quite fun. But the most fun part was having my own baby scallops, which I did some research on in the lab. What did you do with those ones? Um, So what I was trying to do there is understand how scallops grow, so how fast they grow um, and at what rate they grow, because that's something we didn't really know um, until my research. Um, So I got some baby scallops. I measured them at the size they were at the time that I got them. And then I had this really cool chemical called calcine, which is... It's actually a fluorescent chemical, so I dipped my scallops in that. They weren't harmed, they were fine. And then I just kind of let them grow and I measured them at regular intervals, put them under the microscope and I could see the fluorescent mark um, to measure how much they'd grown. Hopefully that makes sense. Kind of like tree rings, I suppose. They lay down individual growth rings. So that was the purpose so like of the scallops. like a new layer of shell every year. Yeah. So with baby ones, the layers happen a lot more often. There's almost one a day. And that, because, you know, when you're a baby, you grow a lot more than when you're old, usually. Mm-hmm. So that was what I did. But mainly it was feeding them, turning up in the morning, and they would kind of swim up, spit water at me, and then I'd be like, okay, I need to feed them. Do they? So they recognize you? And they oh, were... I don't think they recognize me, but they know because and I turned... And it was feeding time. Yeah, like I'd turned the filters off and then oh, okay. they'd sort of come out from under the sandy stuff that was in the bottom of the tank. And then, because I would make up my own um, food and mm-hmm. I'd have to grow the algae in bags and sunlight and stuff like that. But when that went in the water, you could see that they could sense it with their um, tentacles and then they'd sort of start swimming around. And Did they look like the birds on SpongeBob SquarePants? Kind of. Kind of did, yeah. They were really cute. Like, they actually look like that. Okay, and so what did you find out? How long does it take a scallop to reach maturity then, for instance? Um, So to reach maturity, I know it's probably about three years. So by maturity, I sort of classify it as they're big enough for us to legally catch. So we know that that takes about three years. But the research I was doing was only a couple of months because um, obviously my thesis wasn't really long. So I just did maybe three months' worth of growth tracking on the baby ones. And I sort of found that they put down a new growth ring uh, once every two days. So that's kind of the growth rate that we gathered from my research. Yeah. Okay. And so what are the implications then of, of what you found for um, for the fisheries? Like did you, did you learn anything uh, that can tell us about what the – population is going to be like in the future yeah so it'll help us um to make our modeling a little bit more accurate so we've got all this data and we're kind of guessing some of the things that we need to understand to estimate how many scallops there are so we need to know how fast they grow 
how many new babies are coming into the population and um, how often they're dying and what's causing that. So we now actually have a little bit of an estimate of how fast they grow because before that, in the models, we were just really putting an estimate from another bivalve species that I think Canada or something was using. We were just sort of copying their numbers because we hadn't had our own estimate. So now in the big complicated model, we can actually plug in, they grow this fast, um, which is really cool. And hopefully the estimates are a bit more accurate, whether or not that means we can catch more or less scallops. I don't know, because that okay. kind of wasn't my job. Did you yeah. um, did you see much population changes? We're looking through historical data. Was there? Uh, yeah, there was quite a change. Um, there's a there was a new um, scallop fishery found. Oh, it was probably in 2014. I did my research end of 2014, early 15, um, and there was a new fishery actually discovered, which is a really deep water scallop bed which we hadn't really explored before. So the quota and the population numbers that we were allowed to take went up a lot once we discovered that unknown place. Um, That was in the 2000s. Um, And overall, the numbers, there's been a few sort of natural deaths in the population over time from disease and toxic algal blooms and things like that. Um, and overfishing before it was sort of monitored properly. So it has changed from the data that I looked at. But, yeah, that's due to lots of different factors. Okay. Well, um, I suppose these are very important things. We do need to have some sustainable fishery as we rely more and more on, on seafood. Yes, it is. I mean, things like scallops especially, they're one of the biggest exports out of New Zealand, as a lot of the other bivalve species are. So we, you know grow our economy by being able to fish them and export them. And we eat them as well in New Zealand. They don't all get exported. Mm. Okay. Well, look, um, thank you very much for for telling us all about um, Leskolov's, their their past, their present and their their future. Uh, Yeah, and and best of luck with your your future research. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That was uh, marine scientist Sophie Burgess. Science. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. Now, if someone told you that there was a flesh-eating bacteria out in the world, it might worry you a little bit or it might make you think that was something out of science fiction. But in fact, there have been cases in Victoria of a particular bacteria which seems to have a very flesh-eating sounding effect on people. And I have got with me on the phone Professor Tim Stenier from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity at the University of Melbourne to talk about this bacteria. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Tim. Uh, you're very welcome, Stu. Now, I did just mention a flesh-eating bacteria. Is it, this, is, this is basically what we're talking about, isn't it? Yes, I think at its most sensational, that 
that statement is actually true. It, it, this is a bacterium that gets under the skin, that grows in the fat tissue just beneath the skin um, and does effectively eat, eat your flesh. That's the alarmist part of it. I guess there's more to the story than that. But yes, it, it falls in that you know, category of nasty disease-causing microbes. So what is this microbe that we're talking about? What's it, what's it called? Well, its scientific name is Mycobacterium ulcerans. Now, the mycobacteria actually quite a, uh, well, there's more than 190 species in the genus Mycobacterium, and most of them don't cause any disease at all. But there are a few notable, um, uh, notorious uh, species within the genus, and one of those is Mycobacterium tuberculosis, causes human TB, and Mycobacterium leprae that causes human leprosy. So, uh, you know, there, there is potential in this genus for some, for some very uh, serious pathogens to emerge. So it's got cousins that are uh, undesirables as well. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, the name itself, mycobacterium, myco comes from the word for fungus. Is there, is there something about the bacterium that, that reminds us or, or is similar to the way fungi behave? Uh, not, not really. It's, uh, I guess that's a, a legacy of, of early days of microbiology. Um, but no, it, it's a bacterium. Uh, it has a very the, the mycobacteria have a very thick cell wall that actually makes them quite resistant to sort of disinfectant killing or even antibiotic treatments can be can be quite difficult with these bacteria. Yeah, so not not really a, a strong connection with with fungi as such. Just an old-fashioned name then. Mm-hmm, correct. So this mycobacterium was relatively recently found in Victoria. When was the first case recognised? Actually, relatively recent, I guess. Um, but Australia has a reasonably long and proud history of discovery in this area. It was Australian researchers in the 1930s and 40s that, that first described mycobacterium ulcerans as the cause of these nasty skin ulcers. And they did that by studying a, a small series of cases from, from patients that came from the Bairnsdale region in East Gippsland. Um, and these were you know, from people from farming communities that were presenting to local doctors, GPs in the area with unusual skin ulcers. Um, and it was scientists at Melbourne at the Alfred Hospital uh, that, that worked out actually that this was a, a new species of bacterium that the world hadn't seen before or recognised and, and they called it mycobacterium ulcerans. Okay, so it, it hadn't been found anywhere else in, in the world or, or is it present in other places? Yeah, so actually what happened, so in the 1940s, you know, Australian scientists gave a name to the bacterium causing these skin ulcers, but actually at the same time, uh, doctors and researchers in Africa and Uganda and in the Congo, they realised that they were looking at at skin ulcers caused by the same bacterium. Uh, They didn't call it Bairnsdale ulcer, they they called it all sorts of other names, usually associated with whatever region it appeared in, but they're all caused by mycobacterium ulcerans. And since then, actually, we know that the disease occurs in more than 30 countries around the world, but mostly these are tropical countries, and it's usually a disease of poverty. So the the official name for the disease, I should say, is Baruli ulcer. This is the World Health Organization name for the disease. And as I said, 30 countries worldwide, most of them are tropical, and mostly it's in sort of the the rural regions of Western Central Africa. So this is a a disease of of, the poorest of the poor, um, except around Melbourne. 
So when did it start appearing around Melbourne? This is something that yeah, I've yeah, sort of popped up in that, the news. Mm, that's right. So we, we've actually, there's a small team of us here in Melbourne and colleagues down in Geelong have been studying this disease for the last 20 years. Um, and actually we, we can trace back when the disease first appeared in Melbourne to around the mid-1980s. Uh, that's when we sort of first started seeing a few cases and these popped up around Western Port Bay. And in the mid-1990s, we had quite a, a substantial outbreak at Phillip Island um, that then sort of flamed out after about 18 months. Uh, the disease is no longer found at Phillip Island. But since then, it sort of developed. It started appearing on the Bellarine Peninsula. And we've had sporadic cases, I should say, from around the Frankston area since the mid-1990s. But we had a big focus on the Bellarine Peninsula in Point Lonsdale, Barwon Heads, Ocean Grove. And then the bacteria and the disease have taken a trip across the heads and turned up on the Mornington Peninsula. And it's since about 2015 that the disease has really started to take hold on the Mornington Peninsula. And I don't know if you've seen in the papers, Stu, but we've had or probably you know, a doubling of cases um, since 2015, so that this year we're probably on track to finish the year with probably 200 cases, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for a disease that we were only seeing you know, 10, 20 cases a year, that's quite a substantial increase, and that's where the alarm is. Yeah, it's a tenfold increase in in just the last couple of years. Mm. So, wh- where does it where does it come from? How how does the bacteria get from? Wh- how does it get into people for a start? Yeah, this is a key question that's actually occupied researchers since the nineteen forties. Yeah, that what we call it the mode of transmission. How do people get the the infection? And uh, we don't have concrete um, data on what's going on here, but. The research to date, or the best evidence we have of what's happening locally, is that uh, mosquitoes are playing a role in spreading the disease from contaminated environments. So, you know, maybe gardens, um, the environment around where we're living uh, becomes contaminated with the bacteria and then mosquitoes are moving the bacteria from those contaminated environments to us when they bite. Uh, and you, know, you might say, well, how did the environments get contaminated? Well, we think that the Australian native possum, so the common ringtail possum and the common brushtail possum, are actually playing a role in, in amplifying the bacteria in the environment. We know that these, these two species shed the bacteria in their faeces. They can actually get the infection themselves. And so they're, they're uh, playing a role as an amplifying reservoir for the bacteria um, in and around where we live. I might just add there, I don't want to you know, vilify possums. Um, they're a victim of this disease as much as humans are. Um, but we do think that they're part of this transmission chain. Okay, so it's it sort of... Um, can it be transmitted from person to person? Is it contagious in that way? No. No. No, it's not. No, it, it, we've actually got reasonable evidence now from several epidemiological studies showing that there's not, not evi- no evidence of human-to-human transmission. This is environment-to-human. To um, and our actually most recent experiments here at the Doherty Institute have shown you need very, very few bacteria sort of injected under the skin by a mosquito um, and you can, get the, you can get the infection established. So, yeah, all the, all the evidence to date points to no human-to-human, but uh, probably environment-to-human, and we think that if you want to know how not to get a, a Beruli ulcer, you know, what, what can you do to, to limit the chance of getting an infection, then the advice is protect yourself against insect bites, um, wash your skin uh, if you know, receive any cuts or abrasions while gardening perhaps, uh, you know, make sure you wash those and treat them with disinfectant promptly. Um, 
cover up when you're outside, sort of common sense things you would do anyway. I guess, you know, for the people listening to this program, Stu, I, 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 I'd like to circle back to the, you know, your in- introduction when you talked about flesh eating. It is, sounds really alarming, but the, the point to remember, this is still a, a rare disease um, and it doesn't kill you. We have good antibiotics to treat it uh, and we need to just make sure we get, people get diagnosed quickly. Um, and there are some simple precautions like avoiding insect uh, mosquito bites and washing after gardening that, that should reduce the risk of, of infection. I guess, as you say, they, they are pretty common sense things. Nobody really wants to get bitten by mosquitoes or um, get any kind of infection from, from you know cuts and abrasions. So it's sort of uh, common sense stuff there. If people suspect that they might um, have contracted it, what, what would you suggest that they do then? Yes, yeah, so I think you just need to suggest the diagnosis to your GP. Yep. Um, say, look, could this be Beruli ulcer, Mycobacterium ulcerans infection? And there's a very good diagnostic test, again developed by the team of researchers here at Melbourne, um, that can very uh, quickly and, and with a high degree of accuracy tell you whether this is uh, a Mycobacterium ulcerans infection. So good diagnostics, and once that diagnosis is made, then there's a, there's a, a well-established treatment uh, using antibiotics. Now, the antibiotics are quite potent, but they are effective. Um, and so one, once you get the, the right diagnosis, then you're on the path to recovery. So it sounds like um, maybe the media is, is uh, inflating the story a little bit by calling it a flesh-eating bacteria, but it's still, you know, it's a worry to, for people who maybe are holidaying at the, uh, at the seaside, which will probably be increasing in the coming months as we move into summer. Look, I think it's a rare disease. It, it is increasing, but for the individuals that develop this infection, it's, it's a serious infection. Like, it's not... I guess I don't want to trivialise it either, so... Uh, the, the chances of any one of your listeners developing this this disease is small, but if they were that unlucky, then you know it can be quite a serious infection. Uh, so it's one of those you know weighing up the risks. The risk is small, but if you're unfortunate enough to to pick up this infection, then it can be quite nasty. Okay, well I guess you know uh, the the statistics say that you're probably not likely to get it, but it is worth taking precautions. And as I said before, nobody really wants to get bitten by mosquitoes this not being the only thing you can contract from mosquito bites. That's um, right. That's right. It's good common sense um, uh, anti-infection control practices. That's right. Yeah, so if we just uh, keep, an, keep an eye on mosquitoes, try and control them in our local area, and uh, I guess wear the insect repellents and uh, loose clothing so that they can't bite people, that's probably the best way to avoid it. Definitely. Uh, that's right. No fully fully uh, support that advice and if you go to the department of health and human services website they offer the similar similar advice well fantastic um it it does sound slightly scary but uh it sounds also manageable so um thanks for joining us on lost in science uh professor stania you're very welcome Stu. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We would love you to get in touch with us. If you want to do that, you could email us at lostinsci, that's S-C-I, at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook where you can friend our page. We are Lost in Science on 3CR, or you can look us up on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1, I believe. Or you can look up our podcast. If you are listening to our podcast through iTunes, then please take the time to go over there and give us a good rating and review because that will help 
other people find this wonderful science programming. Or if you listen to us on the radio, you can find us again same time next week. And once again, Stu, Manisha, Claire and Chris will get Lost Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.